bringing you key insights, tips, and advice from the brightest minds in the Canadian franchise industry. This is the Franchise Canada Chats podcast. I'm Travis Tenning. And I'm Patrick Wyness with Franchise Growth Lab. Your guest hosts for season six of the Franchise Canada Chats podcast, where we take you into the world of franchising. Our interviews are with franchisees, franchisors, and industry leaders who give you on-point expert advice and share their franchising insights and experiences. On today's episode of Franchise Canada Chats, we have a very special episode with co-owner of Boston Pizza, Jim Treliving. This one was so special, we even brought in an additional host, John DeHart, Chief Strategist of Franchise Growth Lab. Today, you'll hear John talk with Jim about his unconventional path into franchising, his secret career to fund his entrepreneurial pursuits, his growth path to 100 plus units, and the Dragon's Den days. This is a great one. Enjoy the episode. Okay, everyone, this is John DeHart. I'm the uh, founder of the Franchise Growth Lab, past chair of the CFA, and I'm here with the great Jim Treleving, co-founder, chairman of Boston Pizza, of course, one of the original Dragon's Den members. Jim, awesome to have you here. Thank you for coming. Nice to be here and looking forward to this, actually, for from a Penticton boy, so. <laughs> yeah, well, let's start there. I want to go back to the beginning and... I know you were an RCMP member. You bought your first franchise, and your first franchise was in Penticton, wasn't it? Yes, it was. I was the first franchisee at Boston Pizza. I was actually stationed in Edmonton, and uh, I bought the franchise when we were there with another policeman who was in the Edmonton City Police. Well, like I remember you and I had a conversation years ago, and I grew up in Penticton, and we, I think we were at Sarah McLaughlin's backyard party. She used to host those great backyard parties with yeah, four or five years ago. Yeah. No, five years ago. And at that party, I said, you sponsored my very first hockey team, the Boston Pizza Brutes. This yes. would have been going back, I, I bet, 1977. And you asked, oh, yeah. John, do you have a picture? I couldn't find a picture, but I found a picture. So let me see. If I can show you the picture, you see that? Oh my God. I'm right there in the middle. Now, the funny thing about this picture, so the Boston Pizza Brutes, funny thing about this picture, you'll also see other jerseys called Robbie's, I think, Datsun. So I'm assuming in the early days of Boston Pizza, you probably were short on money. <laughs> uh, that's that's an understatement. Uh, yeah, we were short on money, but we, uh, we were using everything, every method we could to uh, survive. Uh, let me put it that way. Started with $5,000, my partner and I each had $5,000. And the most amazing thing with all this is that we had to go and get some more money. So we ended up going to the Federal Development Bank up in Kelowna, which was uh, backed by the Canadian government. So my first, the first question they asked me when I walked into the room was, Jim, I know that you're, um, you know, to get a loan from us, we, you have to be turned down by at least two banks. I said, I've got all five that turned me down. So that's how we got the loan and we ended up dealing with him. And that was how we opened the first Boston pizza in, in Penticton in 1968. And then uh, we, about two months later, we were sitting downstairs. Uh, it was a furniture store. It had been a furniture store for years. And uh, there was this big basement down below us. And uh, so we decided in their wisdom that uh, 
you know, we'll throw a couple of ta- tables and chairs down here and uh, we'll use it as, as overflow on a Friday or Saturday night. Well, that turned out to be a, we couldn't do that. We didn't have a liquor license at the time. We had to apply for one. So we applied for a, a, a liquor license. And the next thing we knew, we got the first Okanagan uh, nightclub that was in the Okanagan. And we got, we had to go to Victoria to get interviewed and so on and so forth. Then we had churches that were telling us, you can't do this because it's too close to the high school and uh, all the things like that. Anyway, we ended up getting the license and we opened on July the 23rd, 1968 for the nightclub, the first one in the Okanagan. And we were allowed a three-piece band, but they couldn't sing, <laughs> you can imagine. And we were lined up and packed and so on and so forth. And people for, uh, I think we had to go three months without having any singers. And then we finally got a singer. And then we progressed to having a five-piece band that was made up of local kids that worked at the high school called the Great Canadian River Race. And the Redivo brothers that they had, uh, they worked, their dad was a photographer and so on. And uh, we just, we had a great group that came together. And Michael John was the, his dad was the architect in town. Duncan Michael John was the lead singer. And we had a, we had a ball with those guys. Hmm. So they went on to do big things as well in the band business. But that's how we got started. What you're really saying is, Boston Pizza wouldn't be here today if you didn't start out with a nightclub because I get I bet that floated your restaurant operations until you became a successful restaurateur. John, you're right, right down to the line. <laughs> I, I, what happened is that we did fifty two thousand dollars, roughly, uh, in the pizza business for a year after uh, we opened, and in the nightclub we did about one hundred and eighty, and that that got us through till. All of a sudden, we we built a second one. We built one at Kamloops, and we opened Boston Pizza over there in the basement again. And uh, then we realized this is not, you know, we're going to have two of these, and that's all we'll ever get because there's so much work in it with bands and so on and so forth. And, of course, the, 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 the main store that we had opened, the second store we had opened, actually was in Prince George, where I'd been stationed as a model policeman. And that's what took off. I mean, it was so busy up there. We just couldn't keep, we could hardly keep up. And so that was the big, that was the big change. I love hearing these stories when, about entrepreneurs who struggled financially in the early days. And I, I want to ask you this because I heard a story. I don't know if it's true or if it's myth. Were you a wrestler at one point? Did you, did you have to raise money through wrestling? I, 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 I want to hear the goods here if it's true. <laughs> it's true. Uh, my family didn't know about it for years. Uh, in fact, I was on Dragon's Den one day and the Hart family out of uh, Calgary came on and they asked me, uh, they, they knew who I was. They knew that I'd wrestled, but nobody else had known. I'd kept it a pretty quiet secret because I got to remember I, I was wearing a mask yeah, uh, yeah. and we were called the hangman and uh-huh. there was two of us and uh, we had a great time. And I was working with the Osborne brothers out of uh, Edmonton at the time, did it for two years. And uh yeah, it, it, it paid a few bills and it wasn't a lot till I got hurt. And then uh, I that was my career was over. But we had a lot of fun with it and it was a lot of good times. And, and the most amazing thing was they come on the show 30 years, 40 years later and brought this up. And my wife turned to my daughter and said, did your dad wrestle? And she said, I don't know. I'll have to phone my mom. So she phoned her mother. And uh, yeah, he said he did. 
but we kept it a secret for years. That is classic. So if you ever can share a picture someday with us, uh, I'll return the favor of my Boston Pizza Brutes picture. Oh, I'm I, I don't know. I think we burnt all the pictures. I don't know. <laughs> I kept them out of, they'd be not a sight for a long time. Okay, good. Well, so he, so you, you ended up funding Prince George became successful. You went yes. on and bought. You became a multi more. You bought more franchises before you became the franchisor. Can you just walk us yeah. through that? Yeah. Yeah. What we did was when we originally came out of Edmonton, uh, my partner and I, Don Spence was his name. So we formed a company called S and T Holdings, named after our our initials of our for, and last names. And of course, S comes before T, so it was S and T Holdings. And uh, Don was in the business for a number of years with me, but then he left. We, we What we did is we started opening the stores and, and, and we were the biggest franchisee that Boston Pizza had. Mm-hmm. Remember, the family didn't know anything about, the Adjurita's family didn't know anything about Mark, uh, franchising. So I had a lawyer that I knew in, in Edmonton. His father was an MLA there. It was McCannu was his last name. And he helped me put the uh, franchise agreement together for Gus. Adridas and his family. And it was based on Kentucky Fried Chicken, Dairy Queen were the only two franchises basically out there. And so we took pizza, pieces of every one of them and, and that's became the Boston Pizza Franchise Agreement. And we had a great partner and in, in, in our, our franchisor, Gus Adridas was his name and his family. They were really good with us too because they, you know, there was months we couldn't pay the franchise fee. You know, they're just, we weren't taking enough money in until we hit Prince George. And then that's when the world changed. And then we started opening stores after that. And we ended up with uh, 15 stores of our own in British Columbia. We weren't allowed to come to the lower mainland, but we could do all the interior and wherever we wanted to go. And Gus and those guys in Edmonton, they were Greek immigrants. Part of the whole thing was that at the end of the day was we got to open these stores and do really well. And as we built them more and more, we were starting coming closer and closer to the lower mainland, like Chilliwack and Abbotsford and, and places like this later on. And then we had a chance, Gus sold the business to a, a group in Edmonton uh, called the Miller family and a guy by the name of Ron Coyle, who was an ex-bank manager in the Crown Dominion Bank. And Ron was a great friend of ours, still is to this day. And he is partner and he were running the business when he, he, his partner passed away six months after he bought the business from Gus. So we, we went back and forth and I helped him with, we, we went over and spent time in Edmonton helping him uh, keep going with the business. And then he came in one day and he, we were driving in from the airport, picked him up from Edmonton. We're driving downtown to take him to the hotel, the Four Seasons downtown. And he said, you know, I'm going to sell the company. He said, why don't you guys buy it? And I said, sure, let's do it. And, and by the time we got to the first Four Seasons from down, from the airport, we had agreed to buy the company. We hadn't had a number yet. We got a rough idea what the number was. We weren't happy with it. We we're going to negotiate, but we were going to buy the company. When he got out of the car, by that time, I'd taken on, Don had left the business, Don Spence had left the business, and I'd hired my accountant. His name was George Melbourne. And he worked for Pete Marwick at that time, which became KPMG. And he turned around and he said, when I got out of the car, or Ron got out of the car, Ron walked away and he turned to me and he said, Jim, did you just say we're buying Boston pizza and from Gus? And I said, yeah, he said, where, where are we going to get the money? I, I said, well, he didn't ask us anything about that. I said, we, we're going to buy it. We'll have to figure that out. So he said, we don't have the money, but we're going to buy Boston pizza. And I said, yeah, I said, let's, we'll, we'll figure it out. So that's how it started. And, and, uh, and then we, 
I had a friends of mine that owned the Richmond Inn, coached hockey at that time. My son was on the hockey team with the, the son of the, one of the owners of the Richmond Inn. I went to him and I asked him if he would lend us the money to buy Boston Pizza. Hmm. And he said, I, he said, well, how, what, how are we going to do this? And I said, well, you'll own 50%, we'll own 50%. You put up all the cash, we'll put up all the work. And we promise that we will pay you back whatever it is that you loan to us. So that's what, how the deal was done. So we negotiated that the price would be around $3 million. And we would pay it over time at a 10% interest, if you can imagine, in those days. And uh, that was how we started. Amazing. How many yeah. franchise? How many franchises did the fran- did did Boston Pizza have at that time? Boston Pizza had thirty two. They had Edmonton, and they had some uh, a couple of stores in in uh, one in Winnipeg, two in Winnipeg, I think, and at that time, and then one in Thunder Bay, Ontario, and the rest were in Alberta and BC. And you had yes. did you have fifteen of them at that time? We had fifteen in, in ours. They we had the same amount as as Boston Pizza had at that. Time. Right. So okay. about 32, 32 stores at the time. So now you're a franchisor. Yes. And we, moved, and we had to move. We were still in Penticton. So we moved down to the West Coast. That was when we, when we bought the company. And we decided, George and I decided, George Melville was the name. And George and I decided at that time, we'd be 50-50 partners. And he, when, when we bought the company, he said, because he, he was only a 20 at that time. And Don was gone down to the west coast we we got into a office here and uh we said we were going to franchise everything and we franchised the stores we had which were 15 we took our managers and asked them if they could go and borrow some money from their parents or whatever and uh, bring another partner in with money and buy us out out of each of the locations prince george Kamloops, prince rupert uh, you name it. We were all over the country. Penticton, Kelowna, Vernon, all those places were all franchised over, over a period of a couple of months. What year was that? Just so we have context here. 1983. 1983. Okay. So you started the franchisee 67, 1983. 1968, we opened our first store. It was the first franchise. And the first, right. It was a franchise agreement. That was the only franchise store that the Greeks had. They had three stores in Edmonton at that time. And uh, I lived just down the street from where they were. I was taken there for the first time way back in 67, 66. So it was, it was a different, uh, it was just pizza and pasta. Our menu, if you had a look at the menu, I still got a copy of it. Uh, and it's amazing how small it was. We had 21 pizzas, 20, and the Boston Royal was 21. Uh, we had three, uh, uh, we had spaghetti and meatballs, we had ravioli and meatballs, and we had uh, uh, lasagna. It was the other thing. And we had pop. We had no liquor licenses at those when we opened our first store. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So I love talking about the emerging franchisor space. Yeah. I know it took you guys about 35 years, I think, to get to 100 units. And, and just, I mean, in this country, 95% of franchisors in this country are still under 50 units. The average franchise system never grows past 10 units. Um, when I sold my stake in Nurse Next Door, this is why I founded the Franchise Growth Lab. This problem in Canada has driven me crazy that we struggle to scale in this country. So if we go back to when you were an emerging franchisor in those early days, you're at 40. I, I want you to answer why, you, why do most franchisors struggle to grow 
to 40, 50, 60, 70 units on their way to 100 units. Why do we have so much trouble growing as a franchisor? I think there, there's two things. I was very fortunate to have a really great partner in George Melville. George is no longer my partner. We, we split after three years ago. Uh, he just wanted to retire. We had 46 years together. Great guy, great personality. Can't say enough about him. He was the financial piece. I was the entrepreneur that's saying we're going to, yeah, George made a, a, a comment one day. He said, Jim, you're on the way to the moon. I just want to go halfway. <laughs> and I said, because, you know, you're thinking of a work you want to do. Keep going, keep going, keep going. And I think that that's, that's what really drove me is to think that we, there isn't anything we can't do. And, and, and I say the word can't very seriously because my grandmother came to me when I was a very young boy. And I said, Grandma, I can't do that. She said, she was a little Irish lady. And she turned to me and she said, there's no such word in the dictionary. You can do anything you want. And I don't want to ever hear that word can't again in your life. Hmm. And I, from that day forth, never used the word again. Because I, I thought, well, I can do this. if I. Here's what we should try. And I think that's with entrepreneurs today. The other thing is that, that we, we weren't successful the first time we leaped out of the province or out of the Western side. We went to Ontario and we closed three stores and came back home after Expo 86. And it was the reasons being is that we didn't know the territory. We were a Western-based company. When you flew back to Toronto to this day, you'd use a day. So when you go back there, it, you get on a plane here at two in the afternoon or eight in the morning, you get there at four in the afternoon. The day's gone. So you don't have control. There's a, there's a completely different mentality back there. Vice versa for the people in the East coming West. They get on a plane and they arrive here and every, we're, we're, you know, they, they leave there at seven o'clock in the morning, which is really three hours. There's a three hour time change. So they're leaving actually at, at four in the morning, our time. They arrive here at eight and we've, we're just going to work. They're ready to, the day's over for them. So you had this, this whole thing that was, uh, completely different from what we were trying. Yes, Western Canada, that was what we could do. And when you look at people that have come West from the East, they had the same problem as we had when we went East. What the difference was when we went, when, when we decided to expand, we had, we'd done a lot, what we thought a lot of work in the West. We were very concentrated in Alberta, British Columbia, Saskatchewan and Manitoba, but nothing beyond Thunder Bay. We, one guy in Ontario told me, well, Thunder Bay is not in Manitoba. I said, yeah, but it might as well, should have been. Because it was, it's not related to anything in the, in the Toronto area. So when we went back there, we lost three stores. And I remember coming back on the plane after I was told by the bank that, you know, take your little company and go back west because you're not going to make it here. And the reason we tried to run it from here, we tried to run it from Vancouver. You had to open and we didn't know the market back there. And that was the whole key. I think the same thing with when you're coming from west to east. Remember when we were going back there, the biggest thing was that people work in shifts. People were coming to a restaurant out in Western Canada. They didn't get there till six o'clock, seven o'clock at night, mo mostly eight. If you're a Westerner, you're sitting there. Somebody will say, when are you going to dinner? Well, seven, seven thirty. In the East, they get up at six thirty, go to work, seven o'clock, seven thirty. They get home at three, pick their kids up. And what's the first thing to do? They got to feed them before they go to bed. Right. We didn't read it. We, we saw people coming to our restaurant. We were jammed. We didn't, we didn't, we couldn't handle the volumes. We, we had ovens where deck ovens where you pulled it out with a, with a, a, a with a, 
with a shovel, like a, like a wooden stick, and cut our pizzas. Well, we had to have something faster. These people are kicking their kids home. So there's a whole mentality that we had to change and equipment. So that's why the, the difference is, is, and there's huge differences. What we changed the next time we went back, and I said to George, the next time, we're not going back there. We're the heck with the East. We're not going to go and do anything back there. The heck with them. Well, that lasted about two weeks in my mind. And I went back and I said, I know what we did wrong. We were wrong. The, the banker was right. We were wrong. We weren't prepared to go back there. We didn't know the country. We didn't know the lay of the land. And we didn't know our customer. So when we went back the next time, we went back with a franchisee. We had an office there. We opened. We got to know what was going, what, what time you go to work, what time you come home, how fast we can get this stuff out. We changed everything. And that's how we became successful. When they told me we couldn't open any stores in Ontario, today we've got 130 stores in Ontario. So it does work. And what you had to do is understand the lay of the land. No different for the people coming out. I know friends of mine, they got 50, 60 stores in the, in the Ontario market. They come out here and they, you know, I had the head of Tim Hortons, Ron Joyce said to me, what's the matter with you people in the West? You buy one donut, one half coffee. Hmm. Back here, they buy a, a dozen donuts. And I said, Ron, we are always worrying about our waistline. And we laughed about it because that was his mentality was he couldn't wait until he moved West. He actually left there and moved and opened an office in Calgary. And that what, what changed the world for him. The same thing that happened when we went East, our first store, the second time we went back, I remember sitting with two people from uh, very good friends of mine from Molson's. And I, I said to one of the guys, uh, you know, there's a, there's going to be another store opening here. You guys are going to have competition for Tim Hortons. And he said, who's that? There's a company called Starbucks. They're out of Seattle. And he said, I oh, know they'll never, they'll never, they'll never work back here. Surprise, surprise. And that became because there was a new customer. They weren't going after the customers at Tim Hortons. They were going after the young new person that comes in with a whole new language of having a latte with da 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 da. da. And they never, you know, going into, Tim Hortons was, uh, you know, double sugar, double cream. That was about the double, double is what you'd hear. Again, they looked at the market and said, there's a whole market. There's a young generation coming up. And the, remember Starbucks come out of Seattle uh, based on two guys working out of university. Their ages were a big piece. Of it. So I think there's, there's a lot of lessons to learn on, on when you want to expand and how you expand. And you've got to be making money before you can do that. You, your franchisees have got to make money. Yeah, I, I think there's a, a lot to what you just said. I, I think there's a lot of learning there. A lot of franchisors do make that leap and do struggle. I know when we franchised in Ontario for the first time, we struggled. When we franchised in the U.S. for the first time, we struggled. Yep. So I, I, know, I think what you're saying is, and I often get asked the question, why? Why is it so different? What you're saying is the consumer behavior is just different in different parts of the country. And it, it wasn't until you figured that out and you got that right, were you able to successfully launch in Ontario? Did you also move to Ontario? Yeah. And that was the second time. When we, we, we got into this, I went back and I lived in a hotel for a while and, and at the Four Seasons in Toronto. And I got up one day, it was a long weekend. We hadn't any stores in the lower in there. We were looking for them. And I was trying to get a ticket to a baseball game. Didn't know anybody. And it was a long weekend. So I got up and I went downstairs and I talked to the concierge. And I said, where the heck is everybody? Dead, you know, a long weekend in Vancouver or 
the Okanagan is packed. He said, well, they've gone north. Yeah. And I looked at him and I said, north? You guys are in the south. <laughs> what do you mean north? You don't know what north is. He said, no, they've gone north, Jim. And I said, what? what's up north? He said, lakes. I would never knew of anything called Muskoka. I yeah. didn't know any of that. But the whole of Toronto seemed to have moved out of, the, out of there for three days. Mm. The highways going to the Muskokas were packed. I didn't know anything about the Muskoka. What happened was a friend of mine in Edmonton who was from originally from Ontario called me and he, when I was trying to get these tickets and he said, what do you, why don't you go up north? I said, you're the second guy that's told me about this north up north of Toronto. He said, well, I got, I got my, one of my guys that works with me. He said, he'll come and pick you up and take you up there. And I thought, oh, okay, but I'd rather, I was on my own. I'd rather stay in the city. But anyway, I said, I'll go, I'll go. And I had visions, you know, this guy's going to show up with his wife and the kids and the dogs. Surprise, surprise. He showed up with the kids and the dogs and the whole shoot, shoot match. I get in the vehicle, sit in the back, and we drive for two and a half hours north. I went over before that and went to Canadian Tire and I bought a sleeping bag, a batchy, and a couple other items to help because I, when I went up north somewhere in, in British Columbia or when I was in Manitoba and I grew up, I, we went to the lake. I always had a sleeping bag. We drove and his wife and him sat in the front and I'll never forget. We drove for two and a half hours. We get up there and they laughed the whole way. They never said a word to me, just laughed when I put the stuff in the back of the minivan with the kids and the dog. We got there and he drove down this dirt road and I said, oh my gosh, am I ever glad I brought my good sleeping bag. <laughs> All of a sudden he come out and it opened out right next to the lake, this magnificent, beautiful cottage. I didn't have every clue. And that's again, yeah. not knowing the territory. Yeah. So and when they got there, the first question he said to me, he turned to me and he said, Jim, and they both laughed and he said, Jim, you can get a refund in your stuff when you get back on Monday. <laughs> uh, but you had fun with it. Yeah. So you moved to Ontario. And, and so I'm, I'm assuming a lot of your franchise growth happened in Ontario after that. It did. Uh, and, yeah. and it was, we had, we opened a small office. Uh, I hired a, uh, a, a guy to run the company. Uh, he was American actually, uh, but he had married a Canadian girl and he had, his name was Mark Cinda and he had left, uh, he'd been trained by KFC. He'd been to Australia, came back, young guy. He was running Arby's for them for a while. And, uh, then I hired him through a, an agency and his wife was from, uh, Oakville and, uh, at the same time, this was 1985, I guess it was at that time, 84, 85, you know, or, uh, not 85, uh, 94, 95. And uh, so I was looking at, you know, getting getting involved with that, going back and forth. After we started with that, once we opened the office, once we started doing that, we had, we looked at, you know, do we sell five or six uh, territorial franchises or do we go like we did in Western Canada, one, 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 one or two, 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 if, they, if a franchisee wanted to, but you had to prove yourself for the first one. We tried the, the, for six months or a year, eight months, we tried to do it in, in tranches of uh, four to six units and that didn't work. Let's go back to one. So we did, and we sold a bunch right away. And Mark, at that time, I think we had one year where he opened 14. He had sold 14 franchises. We thought, wow, we've never done this before in our lives. Well, as this grew and as we saw the market grow, and we were not in downtown Toronto, we were in the suburbs and we opened, we opened a corporate store as well in Oakville. 
uh, to train people and, and to run as an operation. That was the first when we really decided that we're in the business in the sense of we're, we have to train people in the new territory and we, we got to have the right equipment. We got to have conveyor ovens, set of deck ovens and on and on this went. That was the second time going into Ontario. We were very successful. So when he got to 14, 15 locations more, we, we just knew that this thing was going to grow like crazy because we were going into places that nobody else was going, even Ontario. They were all staying around the metro area. Uh, doing very well, all, most of the franchises we met. But we went in the small areas, the tall town, and grew. What we used to say, we grew uh, without, within, and coming back towards the city. That was what what we saw as we were the major restaurant in those towns or cities. So, I mean, on this path to 100 units, growth is hard. And I always talk, I always say there's, I call it the 10, 25, 50 trap. Virtually every franchisor struggles to get past 10, if they get past 10, they struggle at 25, get past 25, they struggle at 50 on their path to 100. And the reality is, as a company, when you grow, you have to change at every level to get to that next level. So as a franchisor to get to those 100 units, what are some of the must-have systems when you grew Boston Pizza from that 40-ish to the 100 stage? As a franchisor, what were the real key systems that you had to master as a franchisor to get there successfully? John, you mentioned the one word in there, and it's called systems. What we did is we put our systems in place. We wouldn't let you change. When we brought the Boston Brood out, we weren't letting you change it to whatever you want, make a sub. sandwich, by the way. Love like, the Boston Yeah. <laughs> and the great hockey team they had too. Great hockey team. Best <laughs> name in all of hockey, the Bruce. That's right. That's right. <laughs> systems are the whole key to the system, the whole business. The systems we put in place, then we hired great people to run those systems. You can't run it by yourself. Where a lot of people are, especially entrepreneurs, they decide that I can do this and I can do that and I can do this and I can do it. We had a head of marketing. We had of operations. We had of uh, HR. You have to have all those things in place. Then you, when you put those heads of state in, they have to hire underneath them. We had four salesmen working out of Toronto just for the, for the eastern part of, of Canada. Out of that office, their whole sole purpose was to sell franchises, not to be part doing something else. Doing, you know, the, you can't have your operations guide oh, I'll sell franchises as well. No, it doesn't work. And you have to commit to that. Now, I can remember sitting on the, on talking to my guys back in Western Canada, including my partner, George, on a video one day. And he said, Jim, we're losing almost a million dollars this year because of we got sales of new stores coming. It's costing us over a million dollars. And I said, yeah, George, but we have to spend money to make money. And he said, well, we, I don't know how long we can last doing this. And I said, as soon as those other stores open here, we won't have to worry about that. And that's exactly what happened. You have to set up in the area. We've done it with the United States. We've done it with Mexico. And we have an office there and a president there in both countries. We have a president here. And we have an infrastructure that's set up with a management team that Brad and, and my daughter and, and a whole team looks after the three presidents. So if you don't do that, if you don't put the infrastructure together, it'll collapse on you or you, or you just can't expand because you're working at full time on two jobs. Yeah, I, I think there's an important lesson there for every franchise or entrepreneur. I think we all struggle with 
when do we cede control and where do we cede control? So you, you said you hired a CEO pretty early on. Yeah, we, we, you know, when we were, when we were partnerships back in way back when we brought in a, a chief financial officer and that was George yeah. Neville. When my partner left, he was a 20% owner. I would, at that point, I was, I went 80. So when we bought Boston Pizza, it was after we signed the agreement. George looked at me and he said, so do I get more of this? And I said, no, no, George, you don't get more. You get half. We're 50-50 partners going. It costs you zero. All you got to do is work your butt off. You're the financial side. You look after that side. I'll look after the other side. So we knew right from day one, again, going back to infrastructure. We, we probably, John, we probably didn't know what we were doing other than that's how we wanted to operate. Yeah. But we realized that we each had the separate jobs. And what we did is if you looked at our offices to this day, there was a little ante room between each room. And we used to meet and we'd talk about what we had. I never worried about whether the checks were being paid or we were making any money or whatever. All I knew was I had to have this ready for me. And he had to have it ready for him. Hmm. So we would sit at the end of the month. He'd tell me whether we lost money or made money. I'd sit there and say, we're open 14 or 18 new stores. You know, at one point in back in the, I think it was probably in the mid nineties, uh, we, we got or late nineties at stores one year. And the next year we opened 30 and the next year after that was 25. Hmm. So if we hadn't had the infrastructure, we couldn't have done that. We would have never got to where we are now, where we're looking at 400 stores in Canada alone. And we're looking at the U.S. We're building down there. And you had, it's a different country, different rules, different everything else. Mexico is the same. Yeah. I would have loved, I, I know George, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall in that conversation where he said, we're losing a million dollars a year. <laughs> what are we doing? And you said, let's keep growing. So yes. you had to have the other thing with that, John, we had, I had to have somebody that believed in me too. And I believed in him and he believed in me. And the CEO at that time, or the president running the company that was talking to George there was acting like a partner. Mm. And he was the one that was sort of telling me we were losing money more than George was. But again, he was working there. You just keep working. We, we, we'll finish, figure it out. Yeah. So that's where we got to. And it was uh, the two of us made those, those directional changes and it was nobody else. So like you, you, you obviously know your strengths. And, and so once you had that infrastructure, you had a CEO, of course you had George, what, what is your entrepreneurial talent? Like, and, and how did you use that to help grow Boston pizza once you had a CEO in place and, and all of the org structure, so you didn't have to do the day to day. What is that talent that you have and how did you use it? Well, I think the talent comes from the people you hire. I mean, you can't, you know, I've heard people say to me many times, you got, uh, you know, a really a great structure with your people. Your people seem to love working there and doing the things they wanted to do. But it was exciting because they could do their things. Once you, you didn't put hands on everything, you questioned everything. I remember going into Mark's office when I was in Toronto and he was the vice president of operations for uh, uh, back east. And I walk in there one day and uh, talking to him and he, he said, I want to do this. And I said, oh, God, Mike, I don't think, uh, you know, Mark, I don't think that's going to work. He said, well, let me try it. So what do, what do you say? No. Yeah. You say, yeah, try it. If it doesn't work, we're going to be having a conversation hmm. and it worked. So that, those are the things you have to trust to the people you hire. 
you can't step into their boots. You can only ask them questions. And to me, that's part of the infrastructure that we have to do. We have a management team. I quite, you know, I ask questions to them all the time, but I trust them when they do it. They do the stuff that they're doing. Yeah. And, you know, I, I said, I had a great article written the other day and I said it was, it was published. And I looked back and the guy that wrote it was sitting across from me right now. And he was the guy with another guy that sat. Not, and the article was great, but it, I signed it. Guess yeah. what? I sounded like I was a genius when it came to this. But you got to put the people in place that you know can do really well yeah. and what yeah. you and look after them and, and they so become your family. I, yeah. I mean, I, you just articulated one of the secret keys to scaling is getting the right team and being able to hire them. Is there a specific trait, like when you hire, is there a specific trait in in everyone you hire? Like, do you, what do you look for specifically? Is is there one thing where you know if they have this, I'm going to make probably I'm going to stack the deck in odds of probability of making the right decision on that person. You know, I don't think there's any real. Uh, I I think you can look at somebody and and you look at their their feeling how they how they talk to you. How are they going to react to something in the business down the road that you know well? So what I look at more than anything else is how do they treat people? How would, how did they come across to me if I was going to be their partner? I treat them as my partner. I don't treat them as an employee. Employees are people that I, I don't know what employees are. But what I'm looking at is I want to work with these people and they want to work with me. Are they going to be able to put up with me, number one? And number two, can I do the same with them? Are they giving me a message? Did they look me in the eye? Did they give me a straight answer? That's what I look at. I, I'm not an educated person. I can't sit here and say, well, you know, you can tell me you've got your MBA. And I say, yeah, that's what does that mean? Mm-hmm. MBA, I know it's something to do with masters, but I don't know any of that stuff. So what I look at that person and saying, how is it when I asked him a question or she, how did they answer me back? Did they look me in the eye? Did they treat me that well, it's not a foolish question? So I think that you have to look at that and get a feel. It's more of a gut feel than anything else. I said, you know, you, you, you use your brain for smart stuff, use your gut for feel and, and your heart for how you want to treat it. And to me, that's worked for me. It's worked for, for people that do that in, in a big way. It's how you treat your people. And you're part of the people. You're not, you're not, they're not employees. They're, they're part of your family. So how do you treat your family? If you treat your family terrible, then I don't want you as an employee working with me. It's just not, it's not going to work. Because if you treat that, then everything else is, you tell me exactly what you're like at that yeah, point. It's good advice, I think. And I mean, you talk about partners. We have a lot of franchisees listening to this podcast as well. Franchisees that are yeah. friend, members uh, in the CFA. Do you, you guys have built a great culture at Boston Pizza. I, yes. I, mean, I know some, I've known franchisees in the past. Great culture. I'm assuming you take that same philosophy there are partners to your franchise system as you do it to your employees. You, you want to talk about your franchisees for a bit and just how you go about building a relationship with them or, and how important it is to you and, and, and the growth of, in the growth of Boston Pizza? Well, you know, it's, it's, it, we refer to it a lot as family. You know, we've got a family of employees. I can't think of one franchisee across the country. Maybe they, they'll answer differently than I have. But I, I can't think of one family I wouldn't even stop in to see if I were they were in their area that they wouldn't say, Jim, let's go for a drink or let's go come over the house or whatever. That's how we, we operate. I've had a, people phone me from 
we, we've got a franchisee, Linda McDonald's up in Fort McMurray. And she right now is going through her 40th year. She was an EA in Edmonton for Mr. Coyle when, when she wanted to go into the business. I mean, she's got two stores. The two of the biggest volume stores you'd ever imagine in Boston. And it has for years. And she's a little lady that went up there. And when she had opened her first restaurant, she couldn't make any money. She came back and threw the keys and said, Jim, I'm crying. She says, I can't make any money. I got to get out of here. I said, you don't want to stay in Fort Mac? I'd love to stay in Fort Mac, but I have no, I can't make any money. I said, well, you got to get a bigger place. She mm-hmm. says, easy for you to say. I said, well, yeah, but Linda, that's a, you can't keep up the volume. So she said, well, how am I going to do that? I said, now we can answer some questions. Now we can get it down to the bottom. That was 40 years ago. And mm-hmm. today she's got two locations up there that do approximately $25 million a year. Wow. $12 million each. And the other restaurant we took over was a restaurant that had gone broke. And that's when she got the big restaurant. And I got Ron Coyle. She was an EA originally within Edmonton before we bought the company. He put the money up for her to uh, run that business. And her and her husband moved up there and away she went. And her son is in the business as well. Again, I go back to family. It's, it's how you treat the people, how you, how you treat as a franchisee. Every one of them is like a cousin or a brother or whatever, or sister or whatever. I don't mm-hmm. treat them as a franchisee that they, some of them have problems. You're working with, in most cases, you're working probably, if you had 10 stores, you're working with 10% of the, the guys at the bottom. So that's one or two stores. When you got four, 400 stores, you're working with 40 stores that are, are not going to be the same as the top. And you spend more time with them than you do with the up, up top trying to make them survive. So I think it's, that's what we've learned or I've learned in the business. And so when somebody says, I got a problem, let's sit down and let's talk about it. Let's figure out how we can change it. Because that's what happened with me. When I was told in, in Ontario, I couldn't make it in Ontario. I would turn off and went to Hawaii. I sat there. I think I was going to be there for a month. I'm never going back to Ontario. I lasted a week. Mm-hmm. And then it came back and I said, we were wrong. We did it wrong. We should have had somebody on the ground. And that person's me. So when it went back there, I hired the president or vice president to run the, that part of it. He in turn hired the people. And we sat there with six employees. That's how we started. Yeah, I, I mean, such a good lesson. I think so many franchisors, once they grow, they get past that 100 units, wherever that number is, compliance takes over the relationship. And clearly a hallmark of your success was that relationship you had with your franchisees. Um, I have a core value in our own organization. We call it a friend in every city. When yep. you do franchising right, you can go to any city in the country Call your franchisee up, go for a beer at Boston Pizza, and that's how to build a great franchise, become a great franchisor. You've obviously done it. You know, it's it's to the smallest. There's a a guy that's holding a golf tournament. Uh, We've done in in, in, uh, just outside of, uh, just north of Toronto and uh, up towards Muskoka, where I had never been before. (laughs) And he holds a golf tournament. He sends me a note two days, three days ago, and he said, Jim, I... We'd love to have you down here if you can make it in your schedule. I'm going to try my hardest to be there. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. You know, yeah. this is just one little little deal. He said, it's not just for me. The whole town's going to go nuts when you come. But that's to me is because he's built that. He's he's being in part of that. You know, that's representing me and everybody else in the name of Boston Pizza. That's what makes it a success. Not Not me. It's, you know, when somebody says to me, you know, I was in your Boston Pizza the other day. No, you weren't in my Boston Pizza. You were in this guy's Boston Pizza or this lady's Boston Pizza. 
and I can talk to them if you've had a problem. But it's not my boss. Yeah, so good. Um, I want to uh, I want to move on. You, you've had a couple forays into the international markets, U.S. I think was it Taiwan? I think you tried at some point or somewhere in Asia. Nineteen eighty, uh, we opened our first store in Taiwan in nineteen eighty five. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, 1987. Uh, it was after Expo 86. Uh, we thought we could go anywhere in the world. We did. We we're very successful. We ended up with uh, seven stores there, one in Hong Kong and one in Japan back in the 80s. And then Tiananmen Square happened in China. And we decided that in our wisdom that uh, we had a franchisee that was in Taiwan who had come from Actually, working for Pizza Hut, or uh, Pizza Hut and McDonald's, and we thought he'd be a great one. And he turned out he wanted to get in the nightclub business. <laughs> he ended up getting into the nightclub business, and he destroyed what we had. What we what we didn't do again was we didn't set up in that country to be successful. We kept flying back and forth. I was going on a plane every probably every three to five weeks. I was spend a week there and then come back home. Did it work? We were lined up. You mm-hmm. couldn't believe how big the lineups we had. We're in the process of looking at going back. And now we're looking at it in a different light after we'd opened. When we came back here, we closed that down in 19, 1994, just after Tenement Square, and got rid of the franchisee and then closed those stores. And we had one in Japan, which was with a, one of the biggest companies there called Sunstar, but they didn't expand. So we just closed the store. And Hong Kong was owned by a broker. Uh, we had one in Simsetsu area, uh, got to know the whole area. But he was in the brokerage business. It was just a fun thing to take his family. And so we decided that we, we didn't do it right. Right. So that's when we came back and concentrated on, on Canada. I know there are a lot of franchisors in Canada that are all looking at going into the U.S. I know when we took our brand into the U.S., I mean, we had crushed the competition in Canada. We thought yep. going to the U.S. was going to be fairly easy because we were so much better than our welcome, American welcome, welcome to the club, John. Yeah, counterparts in Canada. And it took a lot longer and a lot more money to become successful for us in the U.S. Is there any bit of insight or advice you have for franchisors either looking at the U.S. or already in the U.S. and needing to expand? What what would you say to them? Well, I think the biggest thing is the lessons you learn when you go across the border. Yeah, They may look like us. They may talk a little bit like us. They may act a little bit like us, but they're not us. Amen. And I'll tell you that uh, I had the biggest lesson handed to me again, uh, because we got up to 70 stores in the U.S. We're at 30 right now. And that difference was was the recession that went through there with easy borrowing, easy money. And I didn't realize in checking our franchisees out at the time that a lot of them were getting having nothing, no skin in the game, as the saying goes. So what was happening was they would come up and say, I've got a chunk. I love your franchise. I want to buy one. Uh, I'm going to put it next to my motel. I got an empty lot there. You can build a a building. I can build a building. Our 70 stores, of all the stores we opened down there, were all successful doing great food business. What we didn't realize is the debt load against the store and the motel. When the motel went down, we went down with it. So we lost over 34, I think, 38 stores. Wow. The buildings are still there. They're into somebody else is running them now, but they had nothing in the game. When we went to check and say, we're going to pull your franchise, they declared bankruptcy. 
and they mm-hmm. next day they open another business. Like it's not Canada. You you wake up to the fact that you're dealing with Americans in a different way. I remember sitting with one of my franchisees, and we were sitting building a corporate store at the time. We just opened in Dallas, and that's where our office is to this day. We were sitting in there talking to a, a franchise or a, an investment bank and a franchisee, and they were saying, "I heard the conversation going back and forth." And she said, well, I need one, 120. And he, he said, well, I can give you out 110. And I walked away and I never thought, well, I, she wants $110,000. It wasn't that. It was 110% financing she was asking for. They were getting 110. I said, well, what's the, t-? I thought it went to 100. She said, oh, no, I got an extra 10, but that was due to the losses for the next. So she had nothing in the business. Yeah. So when they closed, they were just like out the next day. Away. Yeah. So they walked away. Now we got 20 solid franchises. Are we making money for the first time in the, in the last, say, two and a half years? We've cut back on everything we've done to, to now start franchising and you pay your bills as you go. But here's the deal. You have to have at least 20% in the business before we talk to you. Well, yeah, it's a, a, really we're going back to consumer behavior again. Exactly. And we look at like the franchisee in the U.S., they're freewheeling, much more liberal than we are in Canada. They They gamble. And, you know, I, I found... But there's their, no... The other thing, John, there's no consequences. No, you're right. If, yeah. they, if, they, if they close, like, your your company or my company, they walk away tomorrow morning and they go and get another one. Yeah, absolutely. You know, here, I, I remember taking a, a, a very good friend of mine in Dallas, and he wanted to get into another company I'm involved in, with a hockey business. And we were turning around, and I said, I'll put you on the board of directors because, you know, we're, we've got a public company. And so he said, Sure. I'd love to be in there. So I went through his background like you would in Canada. And he gone broke twice. Declared personal bankruptcy. Well, in Canada, you could you can't be on a board. Absolutely. You know, right? Yeah. And he finally, because I hadn't called him back in 10 days. He phoned me back. He said, oh, I guess you read the, my bio and it showed my, I said, yeah, I did. I said, I don't know what the heck to say. I said, I can't put you on the board. He said, yeah, you can. He said, I'll tell you what, my American, I got more money in my American Express than you do. He did. He, he did. did. That's incredible. That's, yeah. But that's what the mentality is in the U.S. Yeah. We learned the rules. Once we learned the rules, we started to, and we, we invest a lot of money down there and we lost a lot of money, but we're still there. We're yeah. working hard on it. We've got, got a president that we think is the right guy. We're moving along. Uh, we're selling franchise. We're opening more stores this year. We'll open three or four this year. We're going to take it slow and build it back up. And I think in the next Two to three years will be somewhere back to where we were before. Good. Mexico good. was the opposite. We opened in Mexico. They bought the franchise in, at a dinner or at a restaurant show and thought it was, they looked all over in Boston, couldn't figure out where the company was from. But they bought this thing that was, we were selling at a, at a booth. And we opened 20 years ago in Mexico with one store in Merida, Mexico, in the interior, yeah. which is, you know, there's no tourists, there, not many tourists there. And now we've got 20 stores there. Awesome. And they're very, very, very successful. Good. I'm glad to hear. I'm, I'm, I want to see you succeed in the U.S. for sure. I want to, I want to ask, I know we're coming up to time fairly soon. Uh, I, Dragon Den days. I, I want to know what you look for when a franchise system is presenting. What do you look for in a franchise system to invest in a franchise system when they're on the Dragon's Den? The, the same thing as I said to you earlier about how does this person react when you ask them the questions? Ah. Or they do. 
And what we did, and I look at the successful ones we have, one is a local one that's from the Vancouver, Okanagan Valley. There's, we started out of here. They came in onto the show with one truck. They brought the whole truck up to the 10th floor of where we shoot Dragon's Den. Hmm. And they had a black and red vehicle called Bellafix. And they pitched this on the basis of having uh, this truck that was going to come to your house and fix your bicycles. I looked at the guys and talked to them, and they they were genuine in my mind. I was game going with my gut. They were from the Okanagan. One guy was from the Okanagan, two guys from Vancouver. They know the system. They're in Toronto giving me this with one store, well, one truck. Today, they've got over close to 200 trucks. They're all through the U.S., and... If you ever want your bike fixed, that's the company to go and talk to. Yeah. And they've done, they're very successful. But what they wanted was a franchise person that had done this before. And that's why they picked me over the other dragons that were all wanting into the deal that they got me. Good, good, good brand. That's right. Okay. So what, I want to know what excites you now. Like what's left for you? What's next? What are you, what's, what excites you these days? I think lots of deals and deals I'm looking at in, in the restaurant, how we can change to make it better. How, you know, I believe and, and, and I looked at our people and I said, you know, we're up to close to 400 stores now in Canada. How many more can we build? You know, we, we're not an in, in the city, but that's a whole bunch of stores we can build in city now. So we did a couple, one in one at the stadium in, in Vancouver, one at Front and John in Toronto. There are big stores, you know, the Blue Jays and the the, the uh, Leafs and the Canucks when they're playing out here. Uh, we're we're busy. We're a sports bar type feel to it, so people can go there after a game or whatever. That's what we think we can build. When they came back and said to our study that was done across Canada to our operational people, they said we can build. You could build another. There's another hundred sites we think you can build in Canada. And we're coast to coast. We're from Newfoundland to Vancouver Island. You know, the one territory we're not as Nunavut, and we're going to get to Nunavut. (laughs) We're in the Yukon. Why not? And that's what excites me is to seeing new blood coming in, new franchise coming in. We're pushing like crazy in the U.S. We're pushing like crazy in Mexico. Uh, I've got our management team working on Europe and, and back into Asia again. So, I got a lot of a lot of things to do yet. I want to do. That's good. I'm I'm glad to hear. I, yeah, you're you're not going to slow down at all. I can tell that. Um, my my one last question. I I think it's it's just so valuable to the CFA community to have founders like you who have such a high stature in this country have done built a legendary system to be part of the CFA. So I guess my my last question. You've been a CFA member for so long now. Why have you remained a member of the CFA? Why are you still part of this organization? Well, I think we as a franchise company want to have an association with something that fits into our model. You know, the Canadian Franchise Association is one of the best things that ever happened in this country because we were all a bunch of people running around. We're, we're in the restaurant business. Well, we weren't really in the restaurant business. We're in the franchise business. And then we're in the restaurant business. You don't have to be just in restaurants. And that's what it is with the franchise, what I think with uh, Canadian Franchise Association. CFA has been huge for us. We talk to people there. We hear their, they hear our, our problems. They hear their problems in doing stuff. And it's just a transfer of information back and forth that helps us all. It doesn't It's not all about one person or one group. I don't, I'm not afraid of walking in and telling people, 
this is what worked for us. I don't know what's that's going to work for you, but that's at least we're having the conversation. And that's what the CFA is good. And that's why we believe and we have not me in the, on the, on the board all the time. It's the franchise guys that are sitting in the in day to day business. It's right now Jordan Holmes sits and, and loves the getting involved with this it, it, because it's delivers to the other franchisees, the problems we saw and what we solved. And I listened to the smallest guy starting out and they come back and say, you know what he's doing? And two or three of his sites, all that stuff is the stuff that we build up. And that's what makes that CFA strong. Yeah. Good. Well, if you're in the restaurant business or any business and franchise, you get into the CFA as myself. Yeah, I, I agree. Well, Jim, thank you for being here today. Thank you for sponsoring my hockey teams growing up. Thank you for making an unbelievable pizza. Some of my favorite, it's always been my favorite pizza. And I guess most importantly, thank you for being such a powerful spokesperson for franchising in this country. Um, we are grateful to you. Thanks for being here. And I will send you my picture of my Boston Pizza Brutes hockey when you send me the hangman picture of you wrestling. Oh, yeah. I think you're going to have to wait a long time for my picture to go that way. But, uh, I, you know, I sort of got rid of them when, before I, my kids came along because they, they still laugh at me when every time I talk about it. But the guys, in, may, there may be one dug around Calgary or Edmonton somewhere. I don't know. I haven't seen one for a long, long time. Anyway, I'd love to see the brute picture. That, that to me is... That was actually started by a young lady that worked for me that worked in Edmonton. We had her come out and work in our store in Penticton and she made that sandwich up and she said, it's a brood of a sandwich and that's how we put it on the menu. So oh, there's a there's a, a server that was working, young lady, and she was the one that made it. That was her lunch every day. So okay. she made it and we put it on the menu. Awesome. I love it. Okay. Thank you, Jim, very much. Thank you very much, John. It was appreciated. Really, really enjoyed it. Thanks. Thanks for listening. For more franchising resources, including how-to articles, expert advice, franchisee success stories, and franchise opportunities, visit FranchiseCanada.online. Don't forget to subscribe to Franchise Canada eNews while you're there. You can also learn more about franchising at CFA.ca and connect with specific franchise opportunities at LookForAFranchise.ca.